as companies pop up that specifically want to serve underserved people and we take our money and we take our toys, you know, and leave the place where they've been beating us up, I think that will get people to really look at changing. Some people have no moral compass and the only way to get them to change is to punch them in the wallet. Welcome to Queer Hustle, where we talk to the hottest up-and-coming queer entrepreneurs about growing businesses, creating dream lifestyles, and taking care of each other. Your host, Michelle Goyle, sits down to work together to explore what's possible when you approach business with full authenticity. What's up, Queer Hustlers? It's Michelle, and I am here with Dahlia Kinsey from Kinsey Wellness and Communications. Hey, Dahlia, you want to introduce yourself to the crew? Yes, I am a queer registered dietitian of color. If you're watching the video, you obviously can see that. And I'm centered on serving the same community that you're working with. So I'm super excited to be here. Super, super excited to have you and to talk about wellness. We don't get to do that super, super much. So tell me what inspired you to start this business? Like what were you doing before? Well, and I still have a day job. So I mostly work in the public health arena and with school systems, with kids who have like new allergies they have to manage or new problems that affect their digestive system. But my real passion is wellness and putting people on a positive trajectory when it comes to their self-care. And I knew that people weren't serving marginalized people. They were doing lip service, like they cared about what was going on with people of color, like they cared what was going on with trans folks and everything, but nobody was really doing the work and certainly not people from those communities in the nutrition space anyway. And I know that how you're treated affects your baseline stress levels and that affects how your health plays out. So a lot of times when people are saying, oh, we're so worried about these black people. They just, they don't eat well. You know, they love that fried food, blah, 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 blah. Blaming the consumer for all their health problems. They're not factoring in what systemic oppression does to the body. And I really think if we're going to help people thrive, we need to address that. So that was my motivation behind centering my services on LGBTQIA plus people and people of color, knowing that stress management for us is even more important than it is for people who are part of the dominant culture who believe that if you drink 10 green smoothies a day, magically nothing else will matter. Well, when in fact, being marginalized does affect your life and affects your health and we can push against it, but ignoring it serves no one but the oppressor, which, you know, is all very convenient. <laughs> very convenient. And, and, you know, we know all about systemic oppression in, in, in the macro level. But talk to me a little bit about medical oppression, because I know your clients come to you and have been ignored by all kinds of doctors, nutritionists, all kinds of health professionals. How does that affect people long term? And what kind of work yeah. do you have to do to sort of like help undo that? It's insane to me how often... When I see it addressed in the literature, people will talk about how certain folks don't really trust the medical establishment and that you know they want to do work to establish that trust. But rarely do you see people own all of the crimes against humanity that people who worked in healing spaces and worked in 
mainstream Western medicine perpetrated against marginalized folks? How many people chemically castrated gay men? This wasn't something that happened in the backwoods. This is something that happened in the West in mainstream medical arenas. You know, who has taken ownership of that? Who has apologize for that, you know? So people say they want to establish trust, but then they will not own all of the hideous things that have been done. And so many of the rules that we have around what is ethical testing or ethical as far as research methods go, these have been established recently. And for years, we didn't apply them to imprisoned people. So how many Black American men were experimented on in the prison system. It, I mean, it's, and it's well-documented. It's so funny, sometimes people will, in old studies in the 60s and the 50s, it'll talk about the study participants as though they were voluntary, but they were incarcerated and they might incentivize the people involved in the study by exposing them to substances they were addicted to prior to being admitted. And that's literally why they're stuck there. You know, so it's very annoying to me when the medical establishment says, oh, we just wish these people would trust us. When, what have you done to establish that trust? And as recently as 2018, I think it was Preston, some major book publisher was put on blast on Twitter for having like a list of super racist stereotypes in their training texts that people were currently using, telling people like, oh, um, black people don't really feel pain that much. So be careful about giving them painkillers. What? I'm sorry. Is that based in actual science? No, that's not. Maybe if you think like Nazi science is legitimate science, then sure. But no, it's not real. So all the time I come across people who have horror stories to share about abuse they've received during a doctor's visit. And I don't think people know how common it is. So even I, I call myself a small fat, so I'm fat, but it's not like I can't find chairs that I can fit in. And it's not like I deal with the level of persecution that people in a super fat body might go through. But when I go to the doctor and I complain of anything, people want to talk about my weight. So I could come in with a broken foot and people will say, oh, well, maybe this pain in your foot is related to your weight. And it doesn't matter how obvious it is that that's not the thing. I'm like, okay, well, I was fat a week prior and my foot didn't hurt. So how do you explain that? I have a chronic illness that could not get diagnosed because one of the manifestations of the illness was weight gain because I was having extreme fatigue. But everybody got stuck at the weight. And I was having like hot flashes and all these other symptoms. And people would say stuff like, oh, well, you know, obese people often feel warmer than other people. I'm like, yeah, dummy, I've been fat before, but I'm having hot flashes. Like I know there's a difference and people just don't listen. So a lot of femme presenting people experience that type of dismissal when they go to the doctor that no one wants to believe your symptoms. That belief in female hysteria, it hasn't totally gone away. That belief that women imagine their symptoms. And then for trans femme people, 
they're constantly being dead named at the doctor's office. You just deal with so many microaggressions or we'll just call them aggressions, abuse, psychological abuse when you go to the doctor that you don't even want to be there. And you know that you're going to have to pay your copay all the same, even though you've got an inferior level of care than the cis white het person who went in before you in a small body. Because don't be fat and cis white hat. You still are going to get crappy service. So for most people that I come across, I really have to focus on empowering them to set boundaries and to feel confident and firing people and not listening to your healthcare provider. Like they are this all knowing, you know, person that you must look up to and obey everything they say. They're full of bias, just like the rest of us. And they don't know everything. And if your desires are not part of how they decide how to administer care, they're trash. Because under what circumstances does somebody's consent become irrelevant? In my opinion, literally never. So if somebody is in a large body and they don't want to talk about their weight, that is the end of the discussion. If someone is trans and they don't want to go through like this long patient history with you when they know that you received their records and you can read it on your own. Like that's the end of the discussion. Like I don't care if you're pressed for time. If this is difficult for the patient to sit through and discuss, that has to factor in. And if you're not capable of doing that, making space for that, you're fired. And that does come from a little bit of a place of privilege because I can get as many sick days as I want. And I have the time and the resources to say, well, I went to the doctor, but they suck, so I'm going again. So I understand that's not possible for everyone. But for a lot of people, the biggest block is knowing that they can do that and that they really should. And if you don't set the boundaries, who will? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's this double-edged sword endemic what you're talking about because you've got people that are going to the doctor and saying, well, I can't trust what the doctor tells me. And then you've got people saying, well, what's the point of even going to the doctor? Uh, and then they're not getting health care at all. So you must have people coming to you that really need a lot of kind of remediation. How do you start to address that with your clients? I start with validating really that what has happened to them really is traumatic and that it's no wonder that they're reluctant to go back into a situation that reminds them of previous trauma, but that we can find safe spaces for them and that they are strong enough to move through it. And on a level, we, we all know that we can't really be broken. But sometimes there's so much going on that sometimes it feels like we can't take one more insult. But we can. And we will probably have to because <laughs> that's the reality. So I try to help see the trauma. I think that is very helpful when people are trying to process something bad that's happened to them is having it validated and reflected back to them. No, you did not overreact. This is wrong and it should not have happened, but it did happen. What are we going to do now? I was speaking to someone a couple of days ago who works with cancer prevention and was talking about how early detection is so crucial with a lot of different types of cancer. And the LGBTQIA plus people are at higher risk of dying from a lot of cancers that respond well to treatment because of late detection, because of not being screened. To a large extent, I mean, we can, of course, encourage people to follow certain screening schedules. But until we resolve these systemic issues that make people feel so brazen and 
comfortable with being discriminatory, I don't believe the problem will really go away until we make it clear to people, you don't get to decide that because you believe that gender is binary, that you can call people whatever you want and they can just deal with it. You don't get to decide that because most people don't need a chair without arms that, you know, you're just going to let your large patients stand as they wait to be seen. It's not going to work. Like we really have to prioritize respecting everyone. Absolutely. I mean, you get to a point there where you say it's unfair, but you have to advocate for your own health and you have to really be go in and be assertive and be aggressive and, and get, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth opinions, uh, even yeah. though you shouldn't have to, that's kind of the system that we're in. So how do we navigate the line between we shouldn't have to do this, but we also have to do this in order to get uh, healthy. Yeah. Yeah. It's very frustrating because especially if you are in the thick of an illness, that's giving you a lot of grief, like you have a lot of symptoms the last thing you want to do when you're sick is keep having to go back and forth with bad situations at the doctor's office or even constantly having to get things adjusted or corrected. It's very, it's exhausting. It's important to have a support system and if at all possible, someone who can help you navigate those spaces while you're down. Because if you're really sick, you probably won't have the bandwidth to handle all these battles on your own. One awesome thing about COVID is that more and more insurance companies are leaning into their remote services that previously, you know, there were a lot of things where you had to go in person for, even though it obviously was not necessary for you to physically be there. And there are people who are looking for solutions that will specifically serve trans people and specifically serve LGBT, all of us. And I think that once you find a space where the most marginalized are safe, then pretty much we would all be fine there. So even for people who maybe aren't under our umbrella, you know, these will be welcome spaces where intersectionality is important and inclusion is important. As companies pop up that specifically want to serve underserved people and we take our money and we take our toys, you know, and leave the place where they've been beating us up. I think that will get people to really look at changing. Some people have no moral compass and the only way to get them to change is to punch them in the wallet. It's sad, but that's like the reality of the situation. Straight in the wallet. And, you know, when we talk about queering capitalism, this is one of the things that we're talking about. And one of, you know, one of the questions that comes up all the time at Queer Hustle is what does being queer have anything to do with business? But a lot of what we're doing and a lot of the people that, that I'm talking to and working with, it's really kind of about almost creating our own systems outside uh, to, to help and serve each other because the systems that are existing are not really there to serve. So, you know, it's almost like creating our own ecosystem in a way. Absolutely. What I found is that when you queer almost anything, it becomes more inclusive. Even I used to go to, well, during the pandemic, I'm not going anywhere, but there was a trans yoga class that I just loved in downtown Atlanta. So it was a bit of a commute for me, but I was willing to drive past all these other cis white het 
yoga studios to get there because it was such an inclusive space. And even though it's a trans-centered space and I'm a cis person, the respect for people working hard to get to a place of self-acceptance and to realize that the human family is diverse and that is beautiful. It, it was just totally worth it. And I felt good about knowing that my money was going towards someone who went out of their way to serve their own underserved community and also made room for people who really weren't in their target. Of course, you don't want the people who aren't in your target to take over your class, which I feel like the non trans people were cognizant of that. You absolutely don't want your trans yoga class to be chock full of cis people, but like a sprinkle, you know, won't hurt anything. One of my favorite new trends in business is these types of spaces and queer gyms. There's overt racism and transphobia and misogyny. There's implicit bias. And then there's just something that's like straight up ignorance. And I don't even mean in a derogatory Mm -hmm. way when I say ignorance. I think for cis people, it doesn't occur to a lot of people if, they, if they've never had a trans friend or relative or they're not trans, uh, they don't think about things like, oh, it must be really uncomfortable for a trans person to find a yoga class uh, and they're wearing you know tight yoga pants and things like that and all the things that people have yeah. to think about that other people don't even think about. So it's, it's like a people don't know what they don't know, right? A lot of the time. Right. And that's so interesting. Like that's one of the luxuries of privilege. Right. But I don't understand in 2020 how people still are so lost and still haven't noticed like not everybody's white, not everybody's cis, not everyone's American, not everyone speaks English as a first language. That self-centeredness, thinking that the world rises and sets off your butt and people who look just like you and move through the world the same way you do, it's getting real tacky. Like it's getting difficult to give those people grace at this point. I'm like, we have Google, we have, we have all the things. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and as somebody who is, I'm obviously white. If you're again, like you said, if you're watching this, you can see that I'm white. (laughs) Somebody who I'm from Oklahoma, I have relatives that are like in the Fox news bubble. Mm. And I went through the whole like 2016 curve of like, I, I can't be around my own relatives too. Like, Oh, I have to find a way to like understand that they're not getting any information. That's not like Sinclair broadcasting or their neighbors selling them the same. Cause I can't hate my grandma anymore. I have to figure out how to like be okay with the fact that she's not okay in this particular mm-hmm. way. And like, I, I don't know, it's just, there's so much to kind of unpack and navigate. Obviously, you know, we just got through a really nail biting election, but one of the interesting things that's kind of emerged out of social media, out of the internet is this, you'll hear these folks um, in these groups say things like, why is everybody trans all of a sudden? Or why is everybody gay all of a sudden? And it's like, well, they we, like everyone, we've always been here, but now you're hearing our stories and you're exposed because the democratization of the media that's happened in the mm. past, especially in the past like 10, 20 years, just stories that you never heard and were never told. And so the experience of like, oh, I didn't know this existed. And or why yes. is everybody this all of a sudden? Because now they're exposed to voices and stories that they were never, you know, we never had platforms before. That yeah, it's so interesting. And all of that, I want to start with what you said about us moving through this very difficult transition or really just surviving the previous administration and then looking like we're moving forward, it was difficult to navigate who do you cancel? I live in the deep South and it was like, I can't cancel everybody, everybody, right? 
I have a lot of people in my life that still think that the only people telling the truth are on Fox News. And I just feel a little sad for them because they're really missing out on a lot of the beauty of the human experience because they live in this little fear bubble, this fear bubble where they're concerned that they're going to be erased and that somehow allowing people of color to have like this much happiness will obliterate white folks from the face of the earth. Like they really have that tension and that fear that like, eh, people are trying to, trying to get me. I'm like, mm, probably not. But so I've just tried to give them room, but also allow myself to show up authentically so that I don't have to be the only one who's uncomfortable all the time. Because I think that's something that marginalized folks are used to doing. You might tone down your queerness, you tone down whatever about you is different from the dominant culture to make everyone else comfortable. And I think moving through the last four years helped a lot of people realize there's no payoff for us not showing up a hundred percent as ourselves mm-hmm. because people are so comfortable putting other people's lives at risk and their access to justice and equal everything as a citizen that why are we pulling these punches? Like for whom? And if people in our lives don't even know we're queer who is that serving? And two, you say like, oh, what's up with all the trans people all of a sudden? Okay, so I recently came out to my immediate family. It was already out to my brother. My family is very, very religious, very, we're going to say fundamentalist Christian, somewhere in between that and cult. Okay. Like fundamentalist Christian, culty. Somewhere in there. And one of the things they told me when I told them, you know, I just felt like there was no point in me compromising or hiding who I am. I think this is who I was meant to be. I just, I'm not comfortable, like not being totally transparent about this. I kept wishing that y'all would lose access to the internet so I could just live my life. But obviously that's not going to happen. So (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and let you know what's going on. And they said, you know, we've just seen this gay agenda is picking up so much momentum and we're not saying we don't love you. I mean, we love you, but what God has said is wrong is just wrong. Maybe it's something in the food. There do seem to be gay people just everywhere all of a sudden. So it could have been something I ate. That's the final verdict. (laughs) But after I had that conversation, I felt so much more free. And it wasn't a secret. That was the funny part to me, was that even though I hadn't had this conversation with them, they already got this vibe when I was a kid. And here I am playing down my true identity to protect whom? For what? And I feel like a weight has lifted And now I don't allow people into my space that can't even see queer people as human. So there were people in my space who have suddenly ghosted that didn't get the vibe, I guess, because I'm in a straight passing relationship and were just like horrified that maybe it would rub off. And somehow when I go to hell in a handbasket, they'll be sucked along with me. I don't know. I feel so much better knowing those people aren't in my space. But if you have loved ones that are kind of stuck because of all the misinformation they're getting from people who are in a Fox News bubble, they're getting a lot of misinformation and a lot of their fears are being played upon and blown up. 
if that person still brings enough positive things into your life, you don't necessarily need to kick them out, especially if they're like immediate family. But we really have to guard our space and think about how many of those toxic people we're willing to let in, especially if it's just like some friend of a friend for what, you know? It's, I, I really want to talk about this concept of like being in a straight passing relationship or, or, or rolling into privilege that you can have if you want to have it because it feels good. It feels safe. I'm certainly guilty of this at times. I am a bisexual, pansexual person. I am non-binary, but I'm very femme presenting. I do date cis men sometimes and I date and then I've been in relationships. You know, I, I was in a long relationship with a trans woman who for a while was not out as a trans woman oh. presenting as assist man while she navigated how to, you know, approach her transition at work and things like that. And so you're in this queer relationship that everyone perceives as a straight relationship in less than until it becomes uh, an obviously, and it did eventually become an obviously queer relationship. But the way that it felt walking down the street, holding her hand, you know, post-transition, and then the way that it feels walking down the street with like a cis man, I find relief, obviously, in the straight passing relationship in just being able to blend in sometimes and just being able to not have to explain sometimes. And then I also feel an obligation to educate and explain and say, hey, just because a relationship looks like it's straight or whatever, it's not necessarily, you don't know somebody's gender identity. You don't know either of their you know, sexual orientations. I know lots and lots of bisexual cis women that are married to men, for instance. And it's just kind of interesting to, where's the line between, is it okay sometimes for us Mm. to say, you know what, today, I just don't feel like explaining this and I'm just going to walk down the street and blend in versus like, I need to be visible all of the time. And that's a responsibility. And I I personally go in and out of those feelings. Right. I do feel like maybe a few weeks ago when I was feeling very self-righteous about being out of the class. And I will say in my defense, I came out gradually. So I've been out to friends for at least 15 years, just kind of worked my way through people at work and other people who don't have the option of kind of sometimes identifying and not help me realize that it isn't safe for everyone to be fully out and that Only they can decide. And it's not kind for us to put pressure on people and be like, you're not being gay correctly. You're doing it wrong because they don't feel like constantly coming out. And when you are bi or pansexual, it's like you never finish coming out. Like every time you meet someone, you... (laughs) You have to just like keep putting it out there or to go out of your way to do things that you feel like signal queerness to other people, whether that's through buddy piercings or some other way you want to put tattoos to like, (laughs) I know, right. You try and get all queered up. What's funny. I was trying to figure out, uh, do I really want to always wear like very boxy masculine clothes because I want everyone to read like not straight or is that really what I want to wear? And sometimes it's hard for me to tell. So I really want to get to a point where I know I'm making the decision from a heart-centered place, not being pushed around by what people around me want or think. But the concept of passing has always been super offensive to me as a Black American because everybody, well, not everybody knows. A lot of people know that history of people, biracial people, leaving their families to go pass in another part of the country to live a more comfortable life. 
And the idea of abandoning your true identity to get a little bit of privilege, it's like, it's gross, right? Like that's your knee jerk reaction is that's bad for you, the person. And how did that make everyone in your community feel? So that's what troubles me when I know other people in my life who are like out 24 seven because they're like my best friend who's married to his husband and his sister is married to her wife. You know, they don't get to go in and out of being in that spotlight. And I wondered what does it feel like to them to see me opt for some privilege crumbs (laughs) and to go pass. I I didn't even know that they've ever thought about it, but that was all tied to my concept of passing for people of color. Like it just felt gross to me. I don't know if you've ever seen Imitation of Life. There's some super, super crazy old movie. Basically the storyline is this little biracial girl in the fifties or maybe early sixties just becomes obsessed with passing because she is so white presenting. And it isn't until her mother dies that at the end, she finally owns what she's really given up by sacrificing that part of her identity. And that the only person who was really ever going to love her through and through was the one person she continually rejected. And that's how I feel about my queer community. It's like the only people who are really ever going to see me 100% for who I am are in this space. And so if I ditch them for some privilege crumbs, to be with people who can't even fully accept me for who I am. Like, oh my God, where is that? I don't want to be that girl like at the end of of my life realizing that I gave up true acceptance and authenticity for some crumbs. Absolutely. I think sometimes where questions come about for me, you know, obviously as a white person, like I want, you know, as an ally, uh, there there are weird lines around, I have access to spaces. Right. As, as a queer person, I'm about as like relatively privileged as you can get. Right. And I have access to spaces that, you know, you wouldn't feel comfortable in or accepted. Right. A lot of people wouldn't feel comfortable and accepted. And then it's like, at what point can I, if there's a door that's just cracked open a little bit, do I go in there and start to start to make little inroads and say, Hey, you think I look like you and you think I'm like you, but I'm actually not. And here's the difference. And here's, you know, I have an opportunity to start to educate people who haven't been exposed to any friends or family that, and and, and wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be comfortable in a trans yoga class or whatever, and aren't going to, you know, aren't going to drop themselves into the middle of the thick of the community for me to be able to go in and say, "Eh, let me crack the door open a little bit. You know, is it my responsibility to do that as somebody with, with relative privilege, you know, and obviously, you know, keeping myself safe if I feel unsafe because people are homophobic or anything like that as well. I I love knowing that there are people out there who have the bandwidth for that and the energy for that. I would say if you, you have that room, then definitely it's, it's definitely good work. A friend of mine who is white passing unintentionally, like that's just what they look like, (laughs) said that they feel like as a white presenting person of color, that it's their job to do that same thing with their white friends that reveal very racist things that they would never say to my face, that they are unaware of maybe how racist it is, but aware enough to where they would never say it to my face. (laughs) So 
they take that as their opportunity to educate, but also because they don't have to be on all the time as a person of color, they have the energy for that. So I could see where someone who is always, you know, clocked as a part of the community wouldn't have the emotional energy for that most likely. So it's nice that someone who sometimes is clearly identified as buyer pan can make space for that. Because I do think there are a lot of people who can be guided toward being more inclusive and loving, but it's very taxing if you're, you know, if you're on all the time, like how much room do you have to explain to dudes that mansplaining is so 1980 and you're not here for it. You know, it's like, not you have to do the years ago. Exactly. So you can leave that for someone else to do that work. I love the point about, you know, making sure that you can only decide if you're safe or not. And if you have the bandwidth, that's great. You don't have to have the bandwidth. There's not a responsibility. And your friend's saying, you know, I have the responsibility to. It's like, well, no, you don't have the responsibility to. If you feel up to it, that's awesome. But like, never feel like you have to, or like that's the role that you have to play all the time. I think, you know, what's interesting about bi pan people and even non-binary people is sometimes we get it from the other side and people don't realize this either. But not only are we not straight enough, but we're also not queer enough. And so sometimes we go into queer spaces and it's like, or even like me hosting this show, people are like, well, you don't seem that queer or like, are you even really queer? You're not queer it's enough. It's like, what it. does that even mean though? Right. Like you don't seem that, what does that mean? Like my head's not shaved on the side or, oh, like, okay. you know, I don't, I don't know. Or like, I don't. <laughs> That's a good theory though, that they're looking for more. Uh, well, you know what I've noticed though? Cause we discovered before the call that we're almost exactly the same age. So I, I had somebody buy on my podcast and I asked him what his experience of that buy erasure was, but he is a Gen Z person and he didn't know what I was talking about. That's so maybe good. we've turned a, co- a corner Yes, <laughs> this is just some old people stuff. I hope so. I love that. And I, I love that, you know, the, the young folks, you know, I have a, a, a couple of kids and one of my kids is 14 when my girlfriend came out as trans and, and she was living with us at the time, you know, so we were like, we took six months to read books and talk to therapists. And we were like, so prepared to tell all the kids and answer their questions and everything else. And we were so nervous. And then we told the kids and they were like, okay. Uh, you're like, like, but I have these books. Yeah. We were like, wait, like, don't you have questions? Like, we're ready. <laughs> like, oh, that's cool. Like I have trans friends or whatever. And we were like, seriously? Cause it was just such a big deal to us and, and not, <laughs> To them, and that was such a cool moment to realize, like the kids are all right. It's yeah. gonna be okay. like all of these things that we're talking about here and experiencing. Maybe they are phasing out for younger generations, and that's super cool. I really hope so because I want for there to be room for everybody to be themselves. And I think if you're working in public health and you haven't factored in how important it is for people to feel safe around expressing their true identity, you're missing out on a huge determinant of health. Because having to pretend you're something that you're not, it is so draining and stressful. I don't really believe you can live a full, well-rounded life if you always have to hide. And it's not our fault if the world around us is making us feel unsafe. And that trauma is real. And even though the people younger than us may not know what bi erasure is. All the millennials know what it is. 
and all the Gen Xers, like, and people have perpetrated that. I was told once in a gay club during Pride, this girl comes up to me in the women's restroom and says, what are you doing here? First of all, what if I was there with my sibling and supporting them? What if I was straight, which I'm not, but just the bi erasure of it all. It was just, it was, it was gnarly. And when I came out and told my other friends what had happened, they were in disbelief, but they revealed years later that they always thought the bisexuality thing was a phase. They just wouldn't tell me to my face because they're not assholes. From gay people, oh, you're just on the way to gay or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> No, some of us really love everybody, okay? Like, yeah, I, it's a real thing. I really love everybody. <laughs> That's I don't thing. understand it. Like, it's almost to the point where I think I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm like, straightness doesn't exist, you guys. I kind of think that sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I think it, like, you know, I, I know there's the Kinsey scale and everything else, but like, I'm yeah. like, yeah, but nobody's really straight. Of I'm course, of course, we're biased. We're like, you know, right. you were socialized to believe that genitals are a determinant of how deeply attracted you can be to somebody. I don't get that. And I'm I'm torn about even using bi all the time because some people are reading that as, oh, I only believe, like, I believe in the gender binary. Right. But I'm like, no, that includes gender. Not, that's everybody who's funny and cute. Everybody. Everybody's funny and cute. I love it. Everybody's funny and cute. We love you. Let your light shine as much as you want to, or if you don't feel safe, that's okay too. That's what we got to say to you. Dahlia Kinsey, thank you so much for being on. This has been amazing. And for everybody out there, Queer Hustlers, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Queer Hustle. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit michellecoyle.com slash podcast. There, you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com slash queer hustle. Until we meet again next week, go out there and let it shine.